This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Earlier this month here on the programme, we looked at how not everyone's happy with RNZ changing the tunes we use to go with our news, mostly because the new ones were done by offshore experts and cranking out short, snappy themes. But what works best these days? Is it big, bold and bombastic, or subtle and smooth? Do people respond better to trad or mod, strings or synths, or all of the above? Hayden Donnell asks an offshore expert in news music who's been collecting it since he was six, and he also gets him to pick out the best and the worst in the world. That's coming up later. Also, we hear about the new public media entity to replace TVNZ and RNZ next year, taking another step forward and picking up a few more critics, and some caustic criticisms of conflict of interest from a somewhat surprising source. When did journalism become an activity for promotional side jobs or favours, or freebies, or gifts. But first, the political press pack and the pundits know that an internal political party scrap makes a good story. A great one, if it looks like it might claim a scalp. So no wonder then that signs of dissent among the Greens' grassroots last weekend made plenty of headlines this past week. The headlines, please. Yes, good evening. Greens co-leader James Shaw is fighting for his political life. He's been forced to re-nominate himself for the job after failing to reach the 75% member support needed to automatically retain the role. That was News Talk ZB News last Monday night on the fallout from James Shaw getting insufficient support for what had become almost an annual rollover of his co-leadership since he first took the job seven years ago. But how did that happen this time round? Well, on One News, TVNZ's deputy political editor Mikey Sherman explained it like this. This week, there were members of the Young Greens that uh, were mobilising to force this reopening uh, of nominations today against James Shaw. And today, we spoke to one delegate who did have voting powers. They said that today was a sign of growing member dissatisfaction with James Shaw, adding that this vote is a call for other candidates to stand up. Well, as we now know, none have so far, and serious candidates from among the ranks of the party's MPs rapidly all ruled themselves out. But when some among the media's political scalp hunters sniffed conflict earlier this week, a bit like school kids sensing an imminent scrap in the schoolyard back in the day, they noisily urged it to happen. TVNZ1 News, for example, amped up the aggro like this on Monday. To the Green Party bust-up now, and James Shaw is in, and Chloe Swarbrick's out. Two big developments in the Greens' leadership uprising today, triggered after a third of the party said they don't back James Shaw. Well, a third of the party's 107 national delegates, to be precise, and whether those actually did represent the party as a whole was really at the heart of this, though those members weren't at the heart of much of the reporting and the commentary, as we'll hear. But the slump in AGM support for him, or the uprising, as TVNZ described it, did signal some dissatisfaction within Green ranks. And judging by this last weekend, James Shaw himself wasn't expecting it. This is obviously a bit of a surprise um, and, and uh, you know, it's, I've got to work few, a, few, a few things. Awkward. And James Shaw saying that then triggered several pundits to say he should have seen it coming because they reckoned they had. The day before the vote, the Herald's Thomas Coughlin said that reports of Green's infighting had been exaggerated. But the headline on his piece, claiming the vote could decide the next government, was still pretty bold. On the spin-off, Toby Manhire said they need to do better at keeping their ears to the ground, pointing out that two weeks earlier, Victoria University's student magazine Salient had run a story that began, 
James Shaw's days as Green Party co-leader may be numbered. Now, this story was based on a post in a Young Greens Facebook group that's only accessible to party members, and that indicated a vote of no confidence might be coming. And also saying, told you so, on Monday, was News Talk ZB's Wellington morning host, Nick Mills. Anyone that follows any form of politics would know James Shaw's tenure was at very best was under scrutiny. When the party changed its rules to allow two female co-leaders as long as one was Māori. Enter stage right, Chloe Swarbrick, the high-profile, young, left-wing, articulate politician. She has the youth vote. And you'd have to be living under a rock in New Zealand if you haven't seen this coming. And also telling James Shaw told you so more than once later on that same day was Heather Duplessy-Ellen on News Talk ZB, first with ZB's political editor Barry Soper. How on earth can he say he was surprised at what <laughs> happened at the weekend? We all knew that this was going to happen months ago. I mean, we didn't yeah, know we it was going to happen this weekend. No, but we but knew it, it was going to happen. It's no surprise to me this afternoon. And earlier on, Heather Duplessy-Ellen said much the same on her own. You know, I'm actually really surprised that James Shaw is himself surprised at what happened to him this weekend. I mean, I thought it was obvious that critics were coming for his job, and this has been signalled for ages, I thought. There have been rumours, and we've talked about this on the show. But what kind of rumours were these exactly? There have been blogs and there have been columns. And, I mean, I can point to some of them for you right now. For example, you might have read Matthew Houghton's column for The Herald. He wrote that back in, in, in April, warning that the stage was being set for Chloe Swarbrick to replace James Shaw. Well, indeed he did. And in that, Matthew Hooten even suggested James Shaw's next job. If not headhunted by an international agency, he's a shoo-in to replace Rod Carr as chair of the Climate Change Commission if Chris Luxon becomes Prime Minister. Couple of big ifs there. But this week, Nick Mills on ZB also tried to headhunt James Shaw. James Shaw is the past. I've got a great position for James Shaw if he does get voted out. I think he'd make a great mayor of Wellington. And while he was at it, Nick Mills threw his own weight behind Chloe Swarbrick. Meanwhile, National Party pollster David Farrer published some old polling data to show how popular Swarbrick was with the public. So that's quite a chorus of right-leaning commentators using their platforms in the media to theorise the downfall of a leader of a government-aligned party that's currently enjoying historically high levels of support and who's also the current Minister for Climate Change. The media also rang round a few former Green MPs, like Catherine Dalahunty and Sue Bradford, who told RNZ many people believed the Green Party had lost its way under James Shaw's leadership. And on News Talk ZB, Mike Hosking gave another former MP, Gareth Hughes, a call. Are you a Shaw man? Well, I'm not uh, a member of the Green Party anymore, so I don't have a, um, a stake in this fight. But um, as a former member, and I've just written a book about the history of the party, you know, it's really interesting how this is playing out. And were you a Shaw man? But Gareth Hughes told Mike Hosking he was really asking the wrong guy. What's driving this? Is this a small clique of radicals or is this the wider view of the party, do you reckon? Well, again, I'm I'm not a member. And soon after, Gareth Hughes had to make that point again. You'd have to ask members of the party and delegates why they voted that way. And there's no shortage of them to talk to, Gareth Hughes assured Mike Hosking. Dozens of meetings of uh, branches in the electorates across the country that decided on the position of the membership. The delegates would have gone to the conference and voted. So it does seem like it's probably more than just an individual faction. Though Mike Hosking already reckoned he knew exactly what was going on there. They're a sort of a movement. They're a grouping. They like to hold hands, sing kumbaya and all's well with the world in their Roman sandals. That's about basically all they ever wanted to achieve. Parliamentary politics is the most intensely scrutinised subject in our news these days, but political party members are persistently ignored.
Even at the events supposed to be all about them, the annual party conferences, you might get the odd vox pop or two from a rank-and-file member in some of the news reports, but mainly they're just used as a backdrop to stories that zero in on what the party leaders have to say in their set-piece speeches. Now, for the Green Party's leadership, it's only the rank-and-file delegates who can settle that James Shaw issue, but only a few reporters this past week seemed willing to sound them out. As we heard earlier, TVNZ's Mikey Sherman spoke to one delegate on the day of the vote and also to others on camera last Monday. Travis Mischewski was among delegates who voted to oust James Shaw. He represents around 170 members as part of his local branch. James should be moving further and faster in regards to climate change. One News has spoken to other Green Party members, one saying they let their membership lapse under James Shaw, but today rejoined the party at the prospect of new leadership. Another member who stood for the Greens at the last election says the party has no shortage of leaders and a contest is a good thing. Under the headline, Green Party Fights Over Plot to Oust James Shaw, the Herald's Thomas Coughlin outlined the aims of two significant subgroups, the Young Greens and the Green Left Network, while Andrea Vance in the Sunday Star-Times last weekend said that by and large the Greens members are quieter, dutiful stalwarts. And she said the dissatisfied amongst them would amount to roughly 15% of the party, and that, she reckoned, was about the same proportion as mutinous factions have in other Green parties around the world. But with no sign of any mutiny by Wednesday, right-leaning NBR columnist Bridget Morton wrote this. Those agitating for change appear to have failed in securing another candidate. Without it, this episode is likely to fade into Green's history. Or until the 2023 AGM, when this week's headlines about revolt, green blood, seething resentments and long knives in the back could be reprised. On scoop.co.nz this week, Gordon Campbell, a former Green staffer for a bit in the decade before last offered this thought. It is completely understandable why a minority within a party that sees itself as a radical vanguard would want to be pushing things along at a faster pace, especially given the urgency of the climate crisis. In an ideal world, this would be a healthy debate. And also in an ideal world, we'd have a media more tapped into the membership of significant mass movements, like political parties, and a little less tapped into the sources of power at Parliament and professional pundits. Earlier this month, the new Minister of Broadcasting, Willie Jackson, introduced to Parliament the Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media Bill, the legislation that sets out the functions and obligations of the new public media entity to replace RNZ and TBNZ by March next year. Now, in that session, they ran out of time for all the speeches at the first reading of the bill, so they had to wrap that up last Tuesday when Parliament resumed again. Now, given that this is a government initiative, opposed only by National and ACT, it was no surprise that the bill was passed comfortably last Tuesday. The ayes are 77, the noes are 42, the motion is agreed to. Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media Bill, first reading. The question is that the Aotearoa New Zealand media, uh, Public Media Bill be considered by the Economic Development Science and Innovation Committee. Those of that opinion will say aye. aye. The contrary, no. The ayes have it. And last Tuesday, five more MPs took their chance to commend the bill to the House or condemn it. All that could have been wrapped up pretty quickly because the arguments for both sides were entirely predictable. National's Joseph Mooney MP was not convinced it would help represent all the people and voices of Aotearoa, as the government claimed. 
Uh, and unfortunately, this mega, mega merger, this mega entity, is going to reduce uh, that plurality, reduce that um, diversity of, of opinion and diversity of structures in our media landscape. And that, Mr Speaker, is a great shame. So the National Party does not commend this bill to the House. After that, Labour's Naisi Chen then spoke about the streaming habits of the younger generation, without quite making it clear how the bill related to that, and then she was followed by Labour's Barbara Edmonds. We also need strong, independent journalism, but you can't have that if all that your children are watching is YouTube, because that's just the way of this world. And again, my children are primary school aged, intermediate age, college age, and at university. Right throughout that spectrum, they are streaming online. So, Mr Speaker, this bill creates a future-proof model. It creates an ability for New Zealand to have strong, independent journalism. It provides an ability for our children in the future to have access to great public media. So, on that note, I commend this bill to the House. And after that, National's Michael Woodhouse reiterated his party's already on the record objection on the grounds of cost during a cost-of-living crisis, and added this... And I think what Barbara Edmonds has just demonstrated to the House, uh, fellow Gen Xer, is that uh, we, the parents, we, the parents of um, Gen Z, do not understand how our children are getting their content. But it ain't through TVNZ, and it ain't through RNZ, and it's not going to be, despite her uh, claims, a merged entity of the two. Content matters more than platform. And after that, the lucky last to address the House was Labour MP Jamie Strange. He was supposed to have spoken earlier, but the Speaker had overlooked him. And so simply what this bill is doing is it's responding to a change in New Zealand society and New Zealand culture. Um, Mr Speaker, I think it's an excellent piece of legislation. Um, look forward to it uh, going through the select, the, uh, select committee process and seeing what, what, um, what we hear from the public on it. I commend it to the House. And as Jamie Strange is the current chair of the Economic Development and Science and Innovation Committee, he'll have a lot to do with the scrutiny of the bill over the next six months. Now, he was also the chair when the same committee ordered an inquiry into the review of the RNZ Charter, even though the days of that charter were numbered because of the new public media entity replacing RNZ, which will have a brand new charter of its own. In spite of that, more than 60 submissions were made to the RNZ Charter inquiry, and the Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media Bill, going before the same select committee, is the first opportunity New Zealanders have had to have their say on a plan developed behind closed doors. The day after the Aotearoa New Zealand public media bill passed its first reading in Parliament, one New Zealander wasn't waiting for any select committee hearing to have his say. It's going to be the biggest cock-up of the modern age. Uh, it's square peg round hole stuff. The cultures are so completely different, never the twain shall meet. It's a disaster. And it would be good for Mike Hosking and News Talk ZB if a new public media entity was a disaster. But he's not the only one pointing out that there are two different broadcasting cultures at the existing state-owned media outfits. And the legislation doesn't make it clear just how they will coexist in a new one. Operational stuff like that is for the yet-to-be-appointed management and the new board members appointed just last week to work out. 
Right now, though, TVNZ's top brass have a more pressing problem with their news. They need a new news boss to replace Paul Urisic, who resigned last Wednesday after the publication of an independent review of the Kamal Santa Maria controversy. And they also have to review TVNZ's harassment policy and the processes for hiring their new presenters as a result. More on that in this week's Midweek Media Watch with Hayden Donnell. If you missed it, that's on our webpage and in our podcast feed. But the thing that prompted Mike Hosking last Tuesday to criticise TVNZ out loud was a news story published the day before by Stuff. Now this said that TVNZ news personalities had been endorsing products on social media, which Mike Hosking reckoned could be a conflict of interest. There's another guy named called Matty McLean. I don't know Matty from a bar of soap, but he hosts the breakfast show on television. I don't know that he calls himself a journalist. I wouldn't have a clue. But he spruiks a coffee machine. He's on Instagram talking about his coffee machine. He gets free coffee machines and fantastic. Now, I don't have as much problem with that as I do with Jessica Much Mackay as the political editor of the state-run television channel endorsing health and food products as gifts. The Stuff News story also named two other TVNZ presenters promoting brands on Instagram declared as ads in the individual posts. And it wasn't much or especially obvious promotion, but it did leave Mike Hosking with this question. When did it become acceptable for the political editor of any organisation, far less the state-owned organisation, to receive and declare gifts? Well, TVNZ, using an unnamed spokesperson, told Stuff that this isn't in their capacity as reporters and any conflicts of interest are declared in line with TVNZ policy. But what exactly that policy was wasn't entirely clear from another of the anonymous spokesperson's responses. There is no blanket rule. Anyone who is approached has to get sign-off to do any integration. Integration meaning, really, just advertising. Now, the National Party spokesperson for broadcasting, Melissa Lee, told Stuff that TVNZ and RNZ must adopt one policy when they combine to form Aotearoa New Zealand public media. And that does sound about right, but it will mean a change of TV culture. Because sometimes the integration at TVNZ News goes beyond on-camera talent doing some personal business on their personal social media on their own time. Sometimes advertisers and sponsors become part of the news programmes themselves. Now, last Wednesday, Mike Hosking was not convinced by TVNZ's response. In the absence of a blanket rule, he said, you've got a problem. Some will be employees, some will be... Contractors, some will be independent, some won't be, some will be political editors, some won't be. So you've got this issue, but there's something wrong here when you've got journalists, people who allegedly are balanced down the middle, no fear, no favour, in the business of spruiking freebies. But what Mike Hosking didn't mention there was that he's actually one of the reasons that there isn't a blanket rule about this sort of thing at TVNZ, because he didn't want to be covered by one when he worked for News and Current Affairs there. Ten years ago, he was a 7pm show host for them, and also their go-to guy for election debates, as well as doing his News Talk ZB breakfast show each day. But on April Fool's Day 2012, the Herald on Sunday reported that he had a celebrity deal with Sky City, which could be worth as much as $48,000 in perks. And it was no April Fool's joke as far as potential conflicts of interest with news was concerned, because at the time, the John Key government was deep in big money negotiations with Sky City over the terms of its convention centre. And when the Herald pointed that out, Mike Hosking wasn't happy. The reason I didn't flag a conflict of interest is because uh, there isn't one. I don't work for Sky City. 
And even if I worked for Sky City this morning, or anyone else, at no point would that ever, by influence, change a question line or alter my view. I take my role, responsibilities and reputation extremely seriously, and it's important for me to know that you know that as well. And Mike Hosking added that an editorial he wrote in support of the Sky City Convention Centre, in which he did declare an unspecified relationship, was in no way influenced by it. His role, he said, back in those days and since, was not that of journalist, just of a broadcaster who tells it as he sees it, and presumably how he emcees it when he's holding the mic for a commercial client at a function. Now, during all this ten years ago, it emerged that Mike Hosking hadn't told TVNZ his Sky City relationship existed, and TVNZ then said Mike Hosking couldn't handle stories about Sky City in the future because of conflict of interest. He could do stories about gambling, but only on a case-by-case basis, TVNZ said at the time, all a bit messy for a prime-time news show host. So surprising then that all that experience didn't spring to mind when Mike Hosking reacted to news of the TVNZ quartet's much more minor endorsements like this. When did journalism become an activity for promotional side jobs or favours or freebies or gifts? Something's not right here. And then Mike Hosking offered up this interesting detail about the current sponsorship arrangements for his own show, The Mike Hosking Breakfast. I know, for example, on this programme, uh, the, the, the marketing, the sponsorship, etc., uh, that we do gets my clearance. I don't deal with things that I don't want to deal with because my name's on the tent. So by declaring himself not a journalist at a commercial station, Mike Hosking reserves the right to declare only as much as he wants to about commercial side deals, while at ZB he has power of veto now on sponsors that might not be a good fit with him, whilst he can also express alarm about commercial conflicts compromising journalism at state-owned broadcasters. Recently here on Media Watch, Hayden Donnell took a look at RNZ changing the tunes we use for our news and why not everyone was happy about them. And while Hayden was at it, he wondered just how hard is it to create a short, sharp, jaunty news theme. And seeing as he's dabbled in music in the past, he pulled out his keyboard and had a crack himself. The news is here, the news is here. Look at it, the news is here, the news is here. Look at it's the news. It's the news. A case of thanks for that, Hayden, but don't call us, we'll call you. Or not. Hayden also went to an actual local composer and asked him to knock out a couple of tunes with a couple of hours' notice, and this was one of the offerings from Jeremy Toy. In the end, controversially, RNZ's new tunes were made by a specialist commercial composer in Australia, where, incidentally, their public broadcaster, the ABC, has used the same tune for its radio news bulletins since the 1950s. It's called Majestic Fanfare, and British composer Charles Williams wrote it back in 1943, and it sounds a bit like it. (laughs) 
Last month, the ABC News show Backstory reported that every effort to update the majestic fanfare theme has met with stiff resistance. And when the ABC started up a youth network called Triple J back in the 1990s, it was told it had to use the old news theme. So they remixed it so heavily that it doesn't even sound much like a fanfare anymore. So, now in 2022, is it best to go trad or mod for your news music? Is old-fashioned bombast still the way, or do we need something more subtle, even silky? Well, one journalist who's heard more news themes than any other is Victor Vlum in the Netherlands. He has the world's biggest collection of news music from down the ages, and lots of it is online to listen to at networkmusic.com if you're interested. Now, recently here on Media Watch, Victor Vlum told Hayden Donnell he liked the new RNZ news tunes, but he said making good ones is much harder than looks or sounds. There are also stories of, for example, uh, successful composers who have been asked to do music for television in general and who basically just can't do it because, like I said, you need to make your point very quickly, very succinctly. Um, So it's actually quite hard. I do think news music is sort of uh, an art form in and of itself. um, And and that has to do with the fact that uh, news music is heard every single day for uh, uh, most pieces of news music. Uh, Newscasts are on multiple times a day even. And for many years, that music needs to be played on a daily basis, and it still needs to sound interesting to people. It can be boring. It cannot be uh, something that they find annoying. So it really needs to be able to withstand the test of time. Is that what you're paying for, really? That you're, you're paying for someone to sort of go into this world where there's, everything's been done before, basically, and try and find something new? Yes, exactly. I think that's uh, what you're paying for. It's a creative process. You have to go through many uh, versions of the um, of similar music, essentially. You have to keep on refining it, uh, make it slightly more fitting to uh, the needs of uh, your program and your station. And there is a lot of work that goes into it. It generally is worth it to spend that time on it because um, a theme can last for, for many, many years. I think your previous theme was on the air for eight years. Uh, if this lasts uh, for a, a similar amount of time, if you divide how much it uh, costs by how many years it's on the air, it's really not that much. You might, in that case, when going for something cheaper, be penny-wise, pound-foolish. It might actually not be the best decision you would have made. It's almost a little bit intuitive what makes a good news theme or what makes a song sound newsy as well. What do these themes add to a show? What do they actually have to offer to a show? It gives some gravitas to uh, the show. I think it makes it sound important. I think people know that something important is coming up. So traditionally in news music, there's a lot of uh, brass, for example. There are a lot of strings that may make it sound important. But some newscasts may want to emphasize that they are uh, very urgent, for example, that that they are on top of all the latest news. And that might be incredibly important for them. So they might have a very fast-paced news theme with a lot of electronic elements. So, for example, a more tabloidy newscast might actually use a theme that has those elements in it. Now we talk about electronic elements here, orchestral elements. That's actually a schism in news music, isn't it? <laughs> that the US news music is more orchestral and Europe is yes. more electronic. Yes, uh, you do, however, see it changing in the United States because uh, if you, uh, for example, listen to the new theme or the theme that's been using uh, that CBS has been using for the past three years, it has a lot of electronic elements in there as well. But it tends to be more orchestral over there as opposed to Europe. Is there an Oceania tradition? When I think of our own news themes, our Aotearoa New Zealand news themes, I think that they'll probably be in the 
European tradition with more electronic elements? Um, I'm most familiar with a lot of Australian new steam music. Uh, they have copied a lot of new steam music from uh, the United States. So, for example, the Channel 9 theme in Australia is actually a, a theme that was used by many ABC stations in the United States. It's from the movie Cool Hand Luke. Same thing goes for the Channel 7 uh, theme, which is a version of John Williams' uh, theme for NBC News, the famous movie composer John Williams. But interestingly, they have made it slightly more electronic. So I think you're right that your tradition is slightly closer to that of Europe these days. 1,900 hours of news music in your collection nearly. World record (laughs) holding amount of news music. I'm going to ask you a question now. Probably everyone asks you, but but what is the best one? What's the best news theme? One of my all-time favorites is is the BBC uh, news theme. Uh, David uh, Lowe, uh, he's the composer. It's, it's really a fantastic theme. And the wonderful thing is that they have these, these pieces of music that they call countdown music, which counts down to the top of the hour. And it's a 90-second piece of music which gets more and more intense. And it has the traditional BBC sound. It's been used on the air since 1999. Uh, uh, various versions have been used since that time. But I think it's really a great uh, theme. I think, it, uh, And I always uh, listen to that with uh, a lot of enjoyment. Let's end the interview on a sour note. What's the worst? What's the worst news music <laughs> that you've ever heard? Uh, well, I guess so. there is a, uh, an ABC station in Philadelphia in the United States. They started using a piece of music uh, in 1972, and they are still using the same exact recording to this day. And um, it's a famous theme in, in, in Philadelphia. It's called Move Closer to Your World, and it has lyrics and I guess why people like it, because it can be a bit catchy, but unfortunately it sounds so incredibly dated. unbelievable that this can still be used and obviously there's a tradition behind it that's why its viewers are still responding to it for me i think it's it, it just really horrible i think it sounds just as cheesy 70s ad commercial music i personally really hate it uh, but like i said a lot of people over there absolutely love it so i think it is a matter of taste in these situations uh, but i personally just don't think it's very suited for newscasts these days you don't sound like a traditionalist, right? You, your time moves on. News music moves on, and you're, yes. you're happy with that progress. Yes, absolutely. I think a lot of people who do like theme music in general, not just news theme music, but also like other theme music that's used in television and music, they tend to have nostalgic feelings to the music that was used uh, during their childhood years. I sort of understand that I have music from my childhood years as well, uh, but I do think that uh, newer uh, things, uh, innovations, are nice as well. So I like the fact that news music keeps evolving as well uh, because uh, I think it's important to do. I think it's important to move the genre forward. Hey, so why did you actually get into collecting news music? 
<laughs> I know that from my early childhood, I just sort of uh, started um, uh, recording uh, music from television from the screen. And I was very young at the time. I think it was like six or seven years old at the time. It just for some reason appealed to me. And as I got older, I started contacting the composers. Uh, I found out on the internet who actually composed the music and I asked them if they uh, wanted to share that with me and some really did want to share that with me. So they sent me their theme packages and I sort of started a collection that was uh, over 20 years ago and it just sort of kept growing and growing and growing. And there's fans of news music out there. There's yes, a community yes, yes. around news music. It's not just you. <laughs> no, actually, there is a bit of a community there. There are like, I would say, about 200 people that collect new Steam music. Uh, some people who work in pretty high positions, even in the industry. And just a lot, and also a lot of people who uh, essentially just have a hobby of collecting uh, news music. That was Victor Vlam, a journalist in the Netherlands with the world's biggest collection of news music. It's online at networknewsmusic.com if you're interested. And there he was talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell about what makes news theme music good and bad. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend. We'll be back with more on the media and midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night on Nights. And then back with more Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.